you're listening to the Star Wars Report's Rebels Roundtable, the official Star Wars Rebels discussion podcast of StarWarsReport.com. Join us each week as we discuss each new episode. We want to hear what you think of this new Star Wars series. Send us an email or an MP3 at RebelsRoundtable at StarWarsFanWorks.com. Follow us on Facebook at facebook.com slash rebelsroundtable, on Twitter at rebelsround, or on our website, rebelsroundtable.com. It's a long time ago in a galaxy far, far away. So strap yourselves in and welcome to the show. Welcome to Rebels Roundtable, the official Star Wars Report podcast that covers all things Rebels animated series. I'm Jonathan, and tonight we're going to be talking about the fourth episode in the regular season, Breaking Ranks. And joining me to discuss this is Mark. Hey, everybody. How's it going? Barrent. Attention. It's good to be back. And the professor himself, Nathan P. Butler. Hey, good to be back talking about Star Wars Rebels. All right, so this episode kind of takes a different approach on Rebels. I know a few weeks ago we talked about Fight or Flight being a bit of a filler episode, but I kind of saw this one the same way. It laid some groundwork for some future things, but overall, I don't know if I was terribly impressed with this episode. What about you guys? And Mark, since we haven't heard from you in a while, why don't you start us off? I could see filler being an apt use of a word for this one, but I enjoyed what it did for it. Uh, You know, in a lot of ways, I felt kind of like it was how Supernatural does their filler episodes. You know, you think it's a filler, and then all of a sudden later you find out that it adds more to things. Uh, Zare was a character, you know, that that came up in the books. He was one of the first, basically, the new canon books that came out was the kid's book about him being in there. So I hadn't read that yet, but seeing him in this actually made me, I'm like, oh man, now I got to go out and find that book. I need to get a hold of it, see what's going on with that character, because I was really drawn into his story. You know, he was looking for his sister Dara and all that and how she disappeared. And there's a part of me that's kind of like, you know, what if he finds out that she went off and joined the Rebellion? Or what if, you know, there's a reason that he ends up hating the Rebels because they may be tied to her fate and he ends up siding with the Empire later. I was thinking, you know, there's some really cool plot twist capabilities here moving forward. And then seeing the Inquisitor, you know, him showing up, I like the fact that they talk about Ezra being a Padawan and stuff. So the Empire's eyes, he's official. And I'm like, oh, that's cool. You know, I like those filler episodes. For me, they're not always a letdown. You know, I look for the little silver linings in them and stuff. And I thought for Ezra's character, this was a a really cool, unique moment. I mean, we find out right out the get-go that he'd been undercover for weeks. And I thought, you know, just sending him in on an undercover mission alone was kind of ballsy. But finding out that he'd been there for a while already, I thought that was kind of a neat twist. Is it a filler episode, though? I mean, didn't we get introduced to the Kyber Crystal in one of the other episodes here? Actually, I mean, they were introduced in Clone Wars, but I think this is the first time we're seeing them in Rebels. And we'll talk about that when we get to it, about this shipment of Kyber Crystals, which this whole episode kind of hinges around. As we've seen with, I think, all the Rebels episodes, there are seeds planted here that are definitely going to grow in the future, but... I don't know. I guess this episode just didn't resonate with me. Well, I wouldn't consider it a filler episode. I mean, I guess you could call all of them filler episodes because we really haven't had an arc where you have two or three episodes that combine into one story. Basically, all of them are self-contained stories, but on a timeline 
that can refer back to previous stories. So, you know, we still, when the Inquisitor did figure out and did mention that he knows who Ezra is, so it did call back to last week's episode. So I wouldn't say that they're too much filler. I think it's just a format that we're not used to. We're used to the Clone Wars where we had these arcs. And I think they're really trying to stay away from that and given these contained stories in each episode. But I really, I enjoyed the episode and we'll get into it. But the battle at the end, I mean, was epic. I'm going to go on record and say I don't see this as a filler episode. This episode gives the characters, again, something to do. Of course, a new mission so we can see their different skills as the skills are developing. It lets Ezra be the focal point of it and shows that he is growing more selfless or, or at least more willing to stick his neck out for other people, if not entirely selfless. We get the sense here, though, that Zare very likely will come back. Now, do we have anything official saying so? I don't believe so. But, you know, I'm sort of that multimedia guy, as Mark is, and I step back and I think, okay, the Rebels visual guide introduced the character briefly, and in one of its little text boxes, basically spoils the ending of this episode. Uh, essentially telling us how this one ends, which makes it sound like that's a setup for something later, because why else would he be in a visual guide with that as part of his background? instead of stopping with the background before this episode and then allowing that to be the big surprise. Plus, you've got Jason Fry writing not just one, but a short series of books, Servants of the Empire, uh, starting with Edge of the Galaxy that is already out, that focus specifically on Zare and his sister Dara and the circumstances under which she either disappears or what's leading up to the disappearance, because she's actually in the first book with him, so it's either leading up to it, or maybe this is just their background, and we're going to assume that she disappeared after the series was over. We don't know, but it's giving us more depth, and I can't imagine them doing that with a character that's meant to be sort of a flash-in-the-pan, one-episode thing. We now have a character that is the same age as Ezra, a friend of Ezra's, albeit I don't think by the end of the episode that he knows Ezra's real name, as I recall. But we've got a character here that really shows some promise. So I would argue that it's like Mark was saying, though I would, I guess, use Babylon 5 as the example. It's a seed. It's a decent, fun little episode, a heck of a lot better than Fight or Flight was. Not quite as, as bombastic as Rise of the Old Masters, but a solid episode. Probably my second favorite of the series thus far. And it's gotta be setting up things to come. There's too much play on this character for him not to be a character seed being put in there for later. So, to me, this was a cool episode, and I'd like to think we're gonna look back at it as one of the linchpins in some of the continuity aspects of this series and the new canon. And then there's also Jake Hell or Jai Kel. I don't know if anyone else is a Avatar Last Airbender fan, but hearing Zuko in Star Wars, I was all, oh, it's Zuko! But that was another character that I was kind of like, are we going to see him again later? I, I like the fact that they were able to have him and Ezra's characters kind of rise to the Inquisitor's level just in the training aspect of stuff. You know, it was like, ooh, we may have potential Jedi candidates here. I like the fact that even though it's not at the forefront, that is something that the Empire is cultivating. If there's anybody that even tips the radar, let's bring them in. Now, we'll talk about what they're bringing in the men for. I mean, this kind of goes to that sort of new intro to Spark of Rebellion where Vader is instructing the Inquisitor to seek out the, the children of the Force and if they will not serve to eliminate them. So, is this what that was? Let's start at the beginning of this episode. We get a nice shot of the Imperial Academy on Lothal, the Imperial Headquarters. I'm not 
entirely sure what that is. I mean, it's an interesting looking building or compound. And we're introduced to these young kids who are training to become stormtroopers. And we talked about it last week. Nathan specifically called out that the stormtroopers don't seem very experienced. They can't seem to really hit anything. Well, if your stormtroopers are 14-year-olds, I can see why. <laughs> you mentioned that opening shot. Uh, again, notice what it is, though. It is a shot of this training facility, but it starts with a couple of TIE fighters zipping overhead, heading toward it. So we got another of these ship-based intros. just happens to be that this one is terrestrial. Or can you call it terrestrial if it's an alien word? Lotharial? <laughs> well, and the other thing I loved was the kind of throwback to the Clone Wars. You know, when you saw the Camoan training center and stuff, the, the grid-like lines and the nature of it. But one thing that jumped out to me was the jumping Jedi aspect of the training. It's like, man, these guys can really jump. Ezra, it makes sense. But everyone else, I don't know. I, if I was the instructor, I'd be like, this whole class is going in for testing. You know, you're jumping a bit ahead, Mark, but this calls back, it's very blatant, it calls back to clone cadets where Domino Squad was training and these things going up and down. But you're right, Mark, this was pretty extreme way of testing. And the well, I can't really see many stormtroopers being able to do that. And I think it was kind of an interesting way to test them. I'm actually surprised that considering some of those falls, nobody was like, had any broken bones. <laughs> Last week, we saw the questionable training methods that Kanan was showing, but maybe it's actually just training in the Star Wars universe is a little bit questionable. It's one of those things where it's a question of, is this really meant to be as exaggerated as it is, or is it just, oh, hey, it's animation? You know, we had that same thing, the classic example of Mace Windu blasting away the tanks and everything. Is he really meant to be doing that in the universe, or is this just exaggerated and we're assuming it's something else? In that case, they made it out to be something that was part tall tale. In this case, lower gravity, perhaps. I mean, they're dealing with something that's, that's essentially intended by the creators to be a cross between the clone cadets training facility and the box um, from the Moralo Evol arc and all that stuff. So you never quite know what the dynamics are going to be with a place like that. Um, but it seems definitely that this is something where we're not supposed to be focusing in on the extreme jumping and more the dexterity that it takes, uh, the fact that Ezra's able to sense things before they happen, and that allows him uh, to be the one who's able to constantly wind up winning. It seems as though, in this case at least, they're expecting us to take that exaggerated type of jumping as just sort of par for the course and not really think about it, which makes me think that that's giving at least some credence to why we could see Ezra do such insane jumps like he did back in Droids in Distress. He's a Jedi, or he has Jedi potential, so he's making this giant jump, but even then it felt a little long even for a Jedi, but if regular people have a little bit more exaggerated abilities here, then it makes sense that his exaggeration would have to be another step beyond that. Seems in keeping with what we've been seeing. I could see them easily throwing in a line down the road, too, where he goes to jump on another planet, and Zeb's like, huh, not so easy on a high-gravity planet, is it there, Runt? I mean, certainly that's something to think about. And also, we have seen other non-Force users have jumping abilities. There was the one episode in Clone Wars where Ahsoka was chasing the individual who stole her lightsaber, and that, I know, wasn't a, a human character, but that alien got away from Ahsoka through jumping. The Django jumper or whatever they called her. Yeah, that was it. 
Now, we're introduced not only to Ezra, and I, I like how it's like this sort of big reveal when Ezra removes his little Stormtrooper cadet helmet. It's not even just a big reveal. That is a big schnoz. Did you notice that when he's looking at it, his nose takes up like the entire eyepiece? Nathan, first you're concentrating on his lips, now his nose. I'm, this is some sort <laughs> oh, no, no, of no. weird obsession that you have with his facial features. The nose was an issue to begin with because it was one of the things that had folks initially saying Aladdin based on some of the concept art of Aladdin and such. But seriously, it's funny because he's looking at it and there's a point at which it seems as though he has to turn his own head to see his own face in the reflection because his nose is blocking the reflection. It's indicative of how bizarre his character design is to the face. Again, unless he's meant to be a certain actor we know is in episode seven and they're supposed to be the same character or related or something. Oh, the nose plays. <laughs> you mentioned the reveal there, though, and one of the things that's really kind of taking me back a little bit with the series is they're going with the kind of opening that we get on a lot of network dramas and such now in that there is no, you know, last time on, because it's all sort of serialized in that sense, uh, so it's not expected to have a last time on to connect the episodes together. There is no galaxy torn by war kind of thing. But now it's sort of, here's a quick little cold open thing. Ta-da! Big revelation. And then quick flash of the credits or the uh, title up on the screen and it's gone. And that used to drive me nuts when they took the long dramatic openings of things like the Stargate series and made it into those quick little, here's a quick swoop, and there's the title and done kind of things. I don't think it bothers me as much when I'm watching it on an iTunes file or something. But when watching it live on television, the, the fact that we got a teeny tiny bit and then just boom, title and done, really irritates the crap out of me for some reason. I don't know why. I think it's because it's Star Wars, and I think I expect better than the kind of crap openings we get on most television series these days. Anybody else find the opening jarring still at this point, four episodes in? Well, I don't find it jarring, but I, I see what you mean. It gives me kind of a, a Walking Dead feel of how they kind of kick off. And Even Walking Dead has an opening sequence that's not just slap the title up there and disappear. It's got its own music that draws True. you in and everything, and the credits and whatnot. Granted, I don't expect credits, but... I don't, know, I don't know what I expected. I guess Clone Wars didn't really have much of an opening either, but it had the title zoom back, it had the fortune cookie mm -hmm. right before it, and it had the lead-up narration, so it didn't feel quite as abrupt when we got the title and things just moved right along. This series doesn't feel like the episodes actually have openings so much as they jump straight in. Yeah. And that's it. No, I, I do have that same issue. I mean, I, I don't like that. It feels missing. Like, it really feels like you're taking a really good score and taking a sliver out of it. And you're just like, all right, what, what would make a good ringtone? Okay, that. Let's let's put that on there. We got to keep it short. Four seconds. We got to keep it four seconds. I think it needs a little more. You know, it doesn't bother me at all. Actually, if I quite, I kind of like it. Get me right to the action. You know, just give me a little snippet of what I can expect for the episode, get the little logo on there, and let's get it over with. You know, it doesn't bother me at all. It actually, I like it better than a long, drawn-out opening. You know, just get me right into it. Well, my opinion on this is, like much of this, I think we're going over to kind of a, a new sensibility. This doesn't feel, or that intro, it never felt Star Wars to me, but it does kind of feel Disney if that makes sense. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. 
well, I will say it's not dissimilar to a lot of other Disney animated shows that I see where it's just kind of that quick blurb and then, you know, kind of moving on. I would prefer something that maybe harkens back to the movies a little bit more than this, but I don't find it so jarring that I can't get past it quite easily. Yeah, I, I could see that. My first reaction was, uh, uh, I mean, I've gotten past that. I, I just think my thing is the, the the track that they've picked for it. Like, I think it crescendos so fast that I find it just a spike to my temples. <laughs> I'm like, there's something visceral about it that I'm still like, I still reject you. I'm slowly taking you in, but I still reject you in all presence. Back to the content of the episode itself. We're introduced to the cadets. There are four cadets that are actually given names. There's Dev Morgan, which is Ezra's alias. There's his friend Jai Kel. Then there's Zare Leonis. And then there's another cadet who I don't think we ever see his face, but it's Oleg. And he's kind of the bully of the group. From the very beginning, you kind of get that closeness between Dev or Ezra and Jai. They, they are kind of razzing each other, kind of going back and forth. I kind of like to see that. Now, Mark, you said it earlier that this is that Ezra has been here for what looks like weeks. And the two Imperials that are kind of overseeing this group are the same Laurel and Hardy pair that we got from Spark of Rebellion. And Nathan, you're going to have to help me remember their names. I know there's Taskmaster Grint. Is that right? And I don't remember the other individual's name. Commandant Oresco. As you said way back for Spark of Rebellion, these are going to be characters that we see repeatedly. Now, what did you think of the idea that they're training 14-year-olds to become stormtroopers? Well, they got to start them young. You know, it's it actually doesn't go against what we've known from the Clone Wars, because even the clones were young when they started training, even though they were in accelerated, they have some sort of accelerated growth built into their physiology. It's not uncommon. I mean, when the clone troopers started off, they're younger than that doing computer programs and and training. So it doesn't go against what we know for the emperor or for Emperor Palpatine to use young children to start them young. I mean, the Jedi start them young, too. So it's it's not that uncommon in this universe. No, I mean, it makes sense in a lot of ways. I would almost even expect to see some of the older cadets and stuff or or people that are fully matured clones or fully conscripted people that have already taken all the training, they've gone all the way through it, see them in the background. There was one scene where they go into one of the rooms when they're talking about, you know, doing their open rebellion stuff later, where there were all these different helmets lined up and stuff. So I thought it was really cool to see the stormtrooper helmets down at the bottom. So I, I got the sense that there were multiple people, not just the, you know, young teenagers involved with it. But I'm with Baron on that. I think it makes sense to have some of them there young. Though I, I kind of do wish that they would have maybe had one or two of them that were a little bit older or, like I said, showed a group of older cadets, you know, walking around in the background. Because that was what the Clone Wars did, only in reverse, where you would see the younger cadets, like, in a, in a classroom in the background or something like that, walking in the hall, those sort of things. Yeah, it's bizarre a little bit, but then again, you got to figure that at this point, I think it's one of the things that Lucas mentioned about how they're sort of moving away from the clones, they're getting to a point where now you're starting to see them have to use recruits in this era, et cetera, et cetera. They can't be quite as choosy and all. I think that was a feloniism. 14 seems a little young, but if you put this in the comparison to the things that a lot of times the Empire was based upon historically, 
Hitler Youth comes to mind and things like that. The idea of teaching children under communism to sort of immediately hate the West and the development of sort of being a soldier for the, the proletariat and all and that sort of thing. You know, it sort of makes sense. And you got to figure this is the beginning of their training and say their training lasts two years, that put them the same age as Ahsoka. Say the training lasts for four years and this is sort of like an Imperial Academy high school type length. By the time they're out of there, they're 18, and the American sensibilities would say, oh, well, that's an adult. So it's odd, but it works. It's just something that stretches credulity just a little bit, but I don't think to the breaking point. Well, the issue with that is, in that opening speech that the Commandant gives, he says, in a few weeks, you'll be soldiers. So... No, this isn't a year-long program or years-long program. What I get from what he says is he is prepared to have them serving in, in some fashion within a few weeks. Yeah, but <laughs> given, given that we've already seen those masks before or a variant of them on what amounts to sort of the transport drivers and such, there's a big gap, perhaps, between the type of soldier they'd be to begin with and the type of soldier that we expect to see when we're dealing with stormtroopers and imperial officers and whatnot, which, again, I guess is something that remains to be seen. You know, we don't know how that type of thing works in this new canon, so until they actually give us some sense of what is the step between this and a stormtrooper, we just kind of have to assume there's probably something, but <laughs> who knows what it is. Maybe it will be revealed in... Servants of the Empire, which I'm looking forward to finally starting to get into in the next couple of days. Well, you can see it now. You know, we find out that Zare's first assignment is being the head cleaner on the AT-ATs. But how about Chopper? I mean, come on. What? Incognito? You can't go wrong there. I did like seeing that. I thought Chopper with the kind of... It, it just looked like he was just kind of spray painted. Like uh, Sabine maybe just got her paint and just like <laughs> gave, gave him a once over. I thought that was I thought that was hilarious. Now, Chopper was the one that I was kind of confused about. I, if one thing is a fact in the Star Wars universe is nobody pays attention to droids. I mean, in, in battles mm -hmm. where there's lasers going around, they can just kind of walk around. Nobody targets them. Why did Chopper have to be painted? Why couldn't he just go in there and be Chopper? I mean, the Inquisitor doesn't know who Chopper is. He doesn't get off the ship. So any of the missions that they've been on, it's not like he would have been spotted. So it was almost like they were bringing more attention to him with this bad paint job than if he would have just went on there and been a droid. See, I think it's the Frankenstein model here because Chopper is a hodgepodge of parts. So I think, you know, that alone, he's like an oddity. You know, I mean, he's kind of like what uh, Bullocks was in Legends with Han Solo. You know, just a, a random version of a droid that no one's ever seen. But I, I thought the black worked because most Imperial droids that I remember watching from A New Hope and stuff like that on the Death Star, they were all black. And I was just like, oh, that's that's so slick. I mean, you know, I didn't even think about Sabine, which is the most obvious one. I just thought, oh, Zeb must have rolled it in some coal or something because it did have a really cool powdery look to it. Actually, we saw a bunch of different color droids in A New Hope. There was one with a clear dome that I think was like green or yellow. Typically, we did see black astromech droids as being Imperial. But I think you make kind of a good point, Mark, that Chopper is a very outdated droid. And anything they can do to kind of downplay that or make him maybe blend in a little bit is only going to be to his benefit. And and I still think Zare notices him when Zare, Jai, and Ezra are going 
to the Imperial headquarters as a reward. They get to be gophers. And Ezra kind of gives Chopper that hand signal. And then Chopper signals Zeb and Sabine. I mean, he's noticed. He doesn't go completely incognito, does he? There are a couple of things like with the incognito aspect that I liked how it played out. I mean, there were moments where I had a question, you know, which which one of the cadets was whose, like, because, you know, the helmets were all the same and stuff like that, where you only had the little red telling you, oh, there's Ezra. Zara, he was uh, the one with the yellow and stuff like that. When Ezra is rewarded by being able to go and serve in the Imperial headquarters, we start to learn what the purpose of this whole infiltration is. He needs to get a decoder from Agent Callus's office and... He does this, he manages to break into his office, and he gets a copy, and he's about to leave when Zare stops him and kind of lets him know that if he tries leaving the office, he's going to set off all these sorts of alarms. And up till that point, I really thought that Zare was going to be that sort of adversary. I didn't, I, I guess I wasn't really expecting Zare to be the ally and maybe that's because i've been trying to stay somewhat spoiler free with this yeah i still kind of question you know his motives he's there because he wants to find out why his sister disappeared and at this moment like all that anger is aimed at the empire but there's a part of me that's like you know he could just as easily find out that his sister disappeared because she joined the rebels and that anger that he has that he's willing to you know risk everything to go against the Empire. Ezra's like, are you ready to hurt the Empire? Are you going to help me hurt the Empire? And he's like, but I mean, what if he finds out it's the Rebels? That's the reason why she disappeared and, and no one could find her. I mean, he's right now thinking it's like some Imperial cover-up, but what if it's a cover-up because she rebelled? I mean, what if that friendship turns south? That's what kept jumping to my mind with this character. And I was, I, that's immediately, I wanted to know more about him. I'm like, I, I got to go get that book. And that's when I discovered it wasn't just a standalone book, but the series of books that Jason Fry is doing. So I'm like, Oh, dude, they got to be doing something with this kid. And I mean, for me, when that scene happened, that was the biggest shock was that he was actually going to be part of him because I was in the same boat as you. I was expecting him to be like the Malfoy to, to Ezra's Harry Potter. The relationship between the two of them just strikes me as kind of odd. There seems to be a trust and a camaraderie that comes almost a little too quick for me to be believable. I mean, I know we it's a 22-minute episode and we got to get to it. But Ezra trusts him and he trusts Ezra really quick, especially consider both of them are there under false pretenses. Mm -hmm. Well, it does seem as though Zare, for his part, earns that trust fairly early on. Ezra really doesn't do anything to earn Zare's trust, at least not initially, uh, unless Zare's just looking at him like, hey, this is someone who'd be a good ally because he's doing well at these different tests that we're doing. But when it looks like Ezra is about to be nailed, because he's pulled out the little encryption thing and whatnot, about to walk out the door and set off the detector that looks like half of a thermal detonator and put everything on lockdown. It's Zare who is able to tell him, somehow knowing this, presumably from information he's gathered while trying to investigate what's going on with his sister, he's the one that says, hey, that's going to set things off. you got to put it back and find another way to do this, or you're going to be nailed. That at least gives him the sense that he's an ally. I mean, unless this is someone pretending to be an ally... To get close to Ezra, to then betray him, um, which seems a little complex for trying to cram it into the length of this episode, it seems as though something that, you know, for, for lack of a better term, Ezra has no reason yet not to believe outside of just a, a general distrust for just about anybody from his upbringing. So somebody who actually 
shows trust initially, that works. And the fact that Ezra even talks about how he's changing from being with the crew, that might even knock away a little bit of the you know, the hesitancy to trust that we would have had from his upbringing, too. So it, it, I, I didn't find it particularly odd on Ezra's part. It's more odd on Zare's part. But Ezra shares a little too much in my mind. <laughs> Later in the episode, he's like, hey, I'm training to be a Jedi. And Zare doesn't really believe him, but I'm just sitting there going, wow, Ezra, I'm sure that's something you want to really spread around, you moron. <laughs> <laughs> well, but but Zare's comment back was priceless. Yeah, who isn't? I mean, <laughs> I thought that was kind of a, an interesting twist as well. Well, I took it as more, you know, you brought up the fact that they're making these jumps out of the well. Is Maybe Zare is a Jedi. Maybe he does have some sort of Jedi power because I took it as, well, who isn't? Like, maybe he's done a little training himself. And that's why he was chosen with Ezra to meet with the Inquisitor. Ooh, that's a good twist. No, it wasn't Zare who was chosen. It was Jai. It was the other one. And when the Commandant is reporting to the Inquisitor, he's saying, I found two possibles that meet the criteria. And it was Dev or Ezra and Jai. And that's why they pulled Jai out of there, because he's kind of going into the witness protection program. (laughs) But I could see him coming back. And what if he was Force-sensitive and for some reason, because he's a little bit more compliant, Kanan kind of gives him a little training too and then creating a conflict between Ezra and Jai? I don't know if anyone wants Kanan training them at all. <laughs> that, that is <laughs> He can't true. handle one Padawan, let alone two. Brent raises a point, though, that just struck my fancy. I mean... What if the Empire is looking for Force sensitives in this regard? And what we're seeing are, you know, a bunch of kids that happen to be stronger in the Force. But once you reach a certain threshold and go beyond that, then you get into the territory that the Inquisitor needs to see them. You know, because that would explain a lot of, of the jumping as well. I mean, we don't need to train them in as long a time if we just get Force sensitive kids. It's just, we got to make sure that they're so low that they don't rebel against us. Like, that would be a cool twist. You know, it's interesting the way that the, the dynamic seems to work, because they don't necessarily say that when the Inquisitor gets there and takes these people, they'll be taken for training. There's some hints in that direction, and that's what Jai hopes is going to happen when it's initially said that he's, you know, the Inquisitor is coming for him. But you could just as easily see the idea that this is the Inquisitor coming to kill them. Or to offer them a chance and then kill them if they say no, which is essentially what he wanted to do back in the last episode to Ezra after their hallway conversation. So I like the fact that they're at least leaving this open to give us the possibility of, you know, just sort of what is the Inquisitor there for? Maybe it's to recruit, maybe it's to kill, maybe it's both depending on the answer that's given. But either way, it does appear to be that the primary factor in determining whether or not the Inquisitor gets called for you seems to be what one might call the Animaniacs test, which is a little (laughs) odd. Well, you know, I want to mention something real quick about Callus before we move on from that. That When Ezra bumps into him and he's like, I got your data pad, you want me to run it in? He's like, no, I'll take it. They showed his face, and I I don't know, for the first time, I noticed how many freckles he had. Like, they did a really good job of the up-close with that character. I mean, he had a very small role in the whole episode. But when that one scene, like that little tiny detail jumped right out to me. And I really, I, I enjoyed the fact that they put that much attention to the flesh tone on the guy. Not only Callus, but if you look at Ezra and anybody else that's gotten a close up, 
you can really see the pores in these mm. characters' faces. I mean, they have they are just leaps and bounds in their animation or their computer generated images what they're doing i mean it is amazing and the little things like when you see people standing around at attention you can see their chest going up and down you can see their breathing they're making little movements that are very natural that people would do yet they don't have to do that you know they're doing that because they're giving us those little things that just make it amazing odd that they pay that close attention to the breathing and stuff and yet when ezra's upside down his hair stays glued Okay, jumping back to the purpose of this whole thing. Now, eventually, Ezra is able to get a copy of the, you know, Super Imperial Decoder Ring or whatever the heck it is, <laughs> and gets it out to Sabine and Zeb, who transmit it to Hera and Kanan. Now, I guess the purpose of this whole thing is to stop a shipment of kyber crystals that the Empire is bringing somewhere? Uh, Sort of. We get the sense, and and this is something that seems to be the case now that I've kind of got a chance to look at the episode guide on StarWars.com and all. It seems that it's not kyber crystals as in like... You know, oh, those little things you can use with holocrons, or in some cases could be used within a lightsaber, depending on which different incarnation of Star Wars and which different incarnations of the Clone Wars that you're looking at. But that this is more like the incarnation of the kyber crystal that was done in... Remember, they released those episodes or or half-completed episodes for Season 6 of the Clone Wars recently um, that are supposed to eventually be on the... Well, I guess... I say eventually, but I guess they're coming out in about a week or so from the time we're recording this. Uh, the season six Blu-ray and DVD set is supposed to have those, you know, Crystal Crisis episodes in them. And the idea was that rather than just being for lightsabers and holocrons, you can actually use those types of crystals to harness the energy to make like a super weapon or something. And they wanted to keep it out of the wrong hands. Well, in this case, it's essentially the same thing. You've got a kyber crystal or or some shipment of these large ones, not the lightsaber type that they're trying to destroy, hence the big, you know, crazy explosion and such at the end and all. Uh, although, did anybody know, speaking of the just the mission in general, one, I do think it was kind of neat that they put us sort of in media res. We don't see him going in on the mission, we just know he's already inside looking for it. It made for a nice, cool little surprise for those who didn't know that Ezra was going to be undercover as a cadet, or whatever you want to call them, to see it happening and all. But this is essentially, and I hate to bring him up, Niebuhr Gascon's mission, wasn't it? We need to decipher some type of code so that we can stop some big plot by the bad guys. So send someone in who can steal a little device or chip or disc or whatever that has the decryption stuff we need to get the info to save the day. Essentially, Ezra has become a latter-day Niebuhr Gascon for this episode. Although, there's so many stories of that ilk I would say that's not necessarily a bad thing. Just interesting to see Filoni going back to the well of a concept that he's kind of already used before. I had not seen that. No, that that one slipped right past me. But when you pointed out like that, it's like, hey, that actually does make a lot of sense. But at the same time, though, that kind of also puts Gascon and Ezra in the R2 and 3PO role in A New Hope, though, too, right? Maybe. Please, Nathan, don't ever bring up Gascon ever again. As far as the kyber crystal goes, I think everybody assumed that this was the kyber crystal that's going to be used in the Death Star. I'm sorry, where did we ever hear that there was going to be a kyber crystal in the Death Star? 
I just assume that. I don't know why I assume that, but I assumed from watching those those Clone Wars unreleased things that this kyber crystal is going to be used in a super weapon, and the only super weapon that they're trying to build is the Death Star. It would totally make sense. It being part of the Clone Wars would be kind of odd because it's in both continuities, and that would just give us yet another of the many, many, many different versions of, hey, here's how we get this. Isn't that what Darth Vader and the Ninth Assassin, a.k.a. Darth Vader and the lack of plot was supposed to be about, Mm. too, was getting the the crystal to use for the Death Star and such, but this being story group canon now, and this episode not having any relation to Legends continuity, it very well could be, which begs the question of whether what we're seeing here is the beginning of a repeating theme, that there'll be more of these types of crystals later. Assuming that the Death Star doesn't have its already, if that's the case, and I'm not far enough into reading Tarkin to know that yet. I would think that this being four or five years before the completion of the Death Star, that they would probably have those components in. And if there's anything we know about the Empire, both from the Legends canon and just from what we've seen in the movies and what we've seen throughout the Clone Wars animated series too, is that the Emperor loves his super weapons. You know, he's going to utilize them in whatever way he can, whether it's something like the Death Star or whether it's even an organic super weapon like the Zillow Beast, the bigger and the more destructive, the better. So who's to say that they're not designing another super weapon? One thing I, I, I was questioning, though, is, you know, we're, we're five years away from A New Hope kicking off and Sabine, like, like she's walking around, she's wearing classic Mandalorian armor which I would think would be something that kind of puts you on someone's I'm going to watch that one list. But she's also got on her left side of her uh, breastplate the Rebel logo that they're using for the Rebel series. But I'm like, when does that logo become synonymous with Rebellion? And shouldn't she be covering that up? I'm wondering more and more about that, about how the crew's operating, the missions they're choosing, and all that kind of stuff, and how far along their impact has gotten to the Empire. I mean, are we like really like at the at the beginning when the Spark of Rebellion kicked off? Was that like supposed to be the very beginning group of rebels acting out? Or are we like, you know, at the point where it's just starting to really take momentum? I keep wondering about that. And every time I see Sabine, that question rises in my head. Like, wouldn't that logo kind of give you away? I don't think if I was part of the rebellion, I'd be sporting that logo walking around an Imperial base. It's almost like Sabine created the rebel logo. Isn't it? Because I think in the Legends continuity, it's the guy from the Force Unleashed 2. Starkiller, yeah, it was his Starkiller. Right, but I don't think that's that's canon anymore, so it could be very well Sabine developed this logo. But one thing I really like about them is when we get into the action, that these guys are capable. You know, we've seen throughout the, you know, Kanan may not be a capable teacher, but they are capable saboteurs. They are capable rebels. Oh, yeah. And when we start talking about that and i don't want to go too ahead too far but these guys are capable and i really like that back to the logo from what i've seen that's not the exact same logo as what they use in the rebellion you know in the original trilogy but it's certainly similar and personally i think it actually looks a little bit better but you know we don't know how these guys are going to evolve but mark to your point about her armor yeah you would think that Mandalorian armor is pretty distinctive, and at some point, it's going to stand out like a sore thumb. I mean, again, I'm I'm stretching into Legends continuity, but I always got the impression that 
Boba Fett's armor, which is, again, based on traditional Mandalorian armor, was kind of a, you know, an unknown. Like, people didn't really know what it was. And he kind of played on that mystery. But if you've got lots of, you know, little Mandalorians or pseudo-Mandalorians running around with it, it kind of takes something away. See, I would take that in a very different direction. From the standpoint of Legends, yeah, there was a point at which that was thought of as a unique thing. But then as Legends continuity grew, there are so many people out there with Mandalorian armor that it really stopped being the thing that made it distinctive. It was the fact that it was his armor, that people recognized him. That's why there's other Mandalorians out there, but the only one being confused for Boba is Jodo Cast because of his coloration being so much like Boba's. But bear in mind, now we're dealing with a new canon here. And the only things we really know about the Mandalorians in this new continuity is what we got with the Clone Wars. And the last we saw 14 years ago, give or take, was Mandalore going into chaos as the armored Mandalorians, uh, the Night Owls and their allies, went up against the other armored Mandalorians, the so-called Maldalorians and such, uh, the ones that wind up going off with Maul. And then we see basically an, an end or at least you know, kind of a detour to their story in Son of Dathomir. So the idea that Mandalore would be back to its warrior roots, not at all unlikely when it comes to this continuity, and the fact that there would be people out there wearing Mandalorian armor seems pretty obvious. I'd say the only thing that should make this something where people would recognize her and say, like, wait, we should keep an eye on her, is if it gets around that someone wearing that particular colored Mandalorian armor, that particularly decorated Mandalorian armor, is involved in rebel activities. But that's the same as saying, hey, it's a crew that's got a Lasat, which is something that uh, is recognized by, I've been seeing Inquisitor, I think, in the episode. Or, hey, it's that group that's got the kid with the big nose and the blue hair. Or, hey, it's the one with that pony-tailed guy who seems to act like a Jedi, etc., etc. I mean, it's just a distinguishing feature. It, to say that just because she has the armor that should make her someone that they should be keeping an eye on more than anybody else within this group, given the prevalence of Mandalorians, it seems, in this continuity, I would think would be just kind of the equivalent of racial profiling, for lack of a better term. To Mark's point about where this fits in with the rest of the Rebels, the symbol itself, of course, is something we're going to have to see evolve at some point, but Filoni has said that part of the growth of this series is as these characters grow and start to realize maybe they're not alone. And the idea that there may be other groups out there rebellious to the Empire, but something has to forge them into what we know of as the Alliance to Restore the Republic or the Rebel Alliance. And I think we got a seed of that when we saw, back in Droids in Distress, we saw Bail Organa. They're acting against the Empire, but at this point, they're probably one of plenty of groups that are out there trying to do it, albeit only with one senator in exile because of it at this point, willing to step up against the Empire. It doesn't seem as though this group has done much to, to distinguish themselves yet that the Empire would recognize them all on sight, barring maybe Ezra uh, and maybe Kanan, just because of the face-to-face -face that they had, say, with the Inquisitor, or the clash with Callus that might bring Zeb into play. But Sabine, of all people... Uh, I'm not sure I agree with that, Nathan. I mean, these guys take on the Empire head on. And what we've known with about Rebels in, in Episode 4 is they kind of try to sneak around a lot. These guys don't sneak around at all. They take on the Empire head on. I mean, when we see in the attack on the ships that are holding that kyber crystal, I mean, they're head on 
to these guys. So I think they might be setting themselves apart from the other rebels that we know in this universe. They take the Empire on head-on, they don't sneak around. However, they did completely sneak around for the entire first half of this episode, and they pretty much just use the sneaking rather than attack directly approach in Rise of the Old Masters to go after Luminara. Of course they're sneaking around, they're breaking into stuff. They're just not very good at it because they keep getting caught and attacked. Well, that's Kanan's fault. Because <laughs> <laughs> he has no focus. Well, you know, Barry, you brought up something that I'm sure we're going to get to here in a second, but I, I wanted to call attention to it. The spaceship battles. I mean, when we see those three cruisers out there in space, I, I don't know, something about the depth, uh, the way their their models are done up and stuff, I really get a kick out of it. The music score lines up perfect with it. I mean, when I start seeing the space battles and stuff, that's that's been something in all sci-fi genres that gets me. I mean, if you can do a really good space scene, I'm there. I, I can forgive lesser offenses when it comes to other aspects of your shows. Get me on the space scene, hook me up, give me the ticket, put me with the fast pass. And I, I really got a kick out of what they were doing with the ties and, and having the, uh, the, the phantom. Yes. I mean, you know, seeing the two go out and, and, you know, have them do their thing and, and chasing each other around while, while all the ties are following and stuff. I got a kick out of that. But there's also an aspect that I keep questioning, like, how does the phantom dock in the back? Because you always see it line up with its front windshield kind of locking in, but yet they're using, the blasters out of it. I'm like, wait, shouldn't that be the front end? Like, shouldn't it be backing in? You know, I picked up on that too, Mark. The only thing that I can take out of it is it's reversible. It can lock in either way, but maybe to access it, it has to be tail in because I can't imagine getting in or out of the ghost proper by climbing through the canopy. And if we could get some toys on the shelves, maybe we'll find out just how this docks in and out. Well, to that, they do have out the first three vehicles. They have the Inquisitor's TIE Advance, which we haven't seen yet, the ATDP, which we have seen yet, and they do have a version of the Phantom. Now, I can't see them making a ghost vehicle that would be in scale for this Phantom to lock into because it would be about the size of my kitchen table if they did. I would I would like that toy very much, though. Um. Please, please, toy gods, make it so. <laughs> Might cost you like $400, but yeah. Anyway, coming to the dual climaxes of this episode, we have the space bottle that we've already talked about, and I thought it was done pretty well. I think that, again, I mean, I'm nitpicking and I apologize, but I think the the idea that the ghost itself can function as an attack vehicle as well as it does with only Hera piloting, I don't kind of buy. I think you need a gunner. Mm -hmm. Even even the Falcon does better when you've got a pilot and a gunner or a pilot. I mean, but she's doing pilot, co-pilot and gunner duties all at once and doing a pretty good job of it. As crazy as it sounds, that took me out of a little bit because the turret isn't just firing straight. It's turning. No, I, I'm with you on that one. I mean, when when Kanan got into the Phantom and took off, I'm like, wait, who's going to board the ship? That was the first thing I thought of. I was like, wait, they, how can they both be flying and yet get what they need to get? Like, one of them has to be on the same ship so they can go and board the other one. I mean, that, that was immediately the first thing that I started thinking of. And then she starts shooting and stuff. And yeah, I'm like, whoa, man, she's multitasking up the wazoo. Are you guys talking about, you're talking about how odd it is for it to be able to, to dock the way that it does? and still be able to use its weapons. There are two sets of weapons. on. There's the weapons on the nose, 
But then there's the the dorsal laser turret thing that it's got that can swivel around the way that a, the cannon on like above the cockpit of a Y-wing can do. Are you talking about the the ones in the front being used while she's piloting the Ghost, or are you talking about the one that swivels? And if it's one that swivels, it makes sense that they could do it. And if you can have Chopper firing the cannons back in Machine and the Ghost, then it certainly would make sense that some type of automated system could do at least a little bit of the work. Or you know, Hera is that good as we saw back in some of the attacking that she did back in again Machine and the Ghost. I'm not seeing where the the issue is. Is are, are are they trying to somehow play it fast and loose with which direction that the ghost or that the phantom is pointing when it's docked or something? There are two issues. Yes, there there is there is a inconsistency with the way that the phantom docks with the ghost. But what Mark and I are talking about right now is the only other time I think that we've seen Hera use the weapons on the ghost itself while she's piloting are the front static mounted laser cannons yeah the ones that are on the the front bubble but then there's also a dorsal turret that rotates and during this battle if i'm not mistaken as she's flying the dorsal turret is also tracking and firing which is something that we haven't seen before in the star wars universe is it possible sure maybe but you talked about the y wings and we've seen the falcon those when they're not having an actual gunner using them they fire straight. They fire one direction. And again, it, it's a nitpick, and I'm sure there's 10 million different ways we could explain it. But for me, it kind of took me out of it. Yeah. The other one is is the way the Phantom docks. You know, they, they originally they talked about, you know, you can use the Phantom as a secondary gun port. You know, so I assumed, okay, you're sitting in the cockpit and you're using the front gun of it. So, like Jonathan said, it has to be able to dock from both directions because the way to get in and out of the ship would be from the back of it. And yet that's not how it docked. It docked coming hot and heavy, which I thought, you know, from a smuggling aspect, that's a cool feature to be able to dock on the fly like that and get the heck out of there. I, I really dig that. But it, it immediately had me going, whoa, wait, what? Because my, my physics meter was jumping off. I'm like, that doesn't work, though, because now how is he going to get out? How do they use the gun? There's got to be another way for this thing to dock. And I keep coming back to that. There's got to be a second way for it to dock. Now, back to Lothal, we have the final test in the well, and this time, the plan is for Ezra, Zare, and Jai to win so that they get to go into one of those walkers to, to see how it works, and they were going to use that walker to escape, but in kind of keeping his friends safe, Ezra ends up losing. And the other cadet, Oleg, ends up winning. And he and Jai and Zare end up in the walker. We get this, I guess, very cool sequence where Chopper plants a bomb. So I guess everybody is a little pyromaniac in this group and blows up one of the walkers. And then they're able to use the other walker to try to escape. But it, in turn, is kind of gunned down by some of the troop transports. and. It's this whole, I don't know, it, it's a really cool sequence. No, I, I, I like the action. I, I, in fact, I like the walker. Like, I, I immediately was like, dude, this would make a cool toy. Like, <laughs> I don't know, there's something about the design of it. While I never really cared that much for the AT-ST in the original trilogy, you know, the AT-AT was more my thing. This walker has a really cool function. It, it kind of harkens back to the Republic's troops and stuff like that. So I, I really dug on that. But I like the way that the pacing of that scene worked. And the fact that Ezra's like, I'll find a way to get on. And you're kind of like, oh, man, how's this going to work? You know, 
And it's also funny that the commandant sees him trying to get onto the walker to escape and, and makes a conclusion. Oh, he's trying to take it on by himself. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> and, and you're almost like, oh, I can see that, too, because of the way he's acting. it. You know, he's like climbing on board. You're like, oh, yeah, he's going to turn the gun. No, sucker. No. I gotta say, the most that's the most creative part of this episode is that last handful of minutes. I mean, you would think that the space battle is what's gonna draw our attention the most. To me, the space battle was kind of yeah, even up to the point where we get a concluding moment that always makes me groan when I see it in films because most of the time it makes no sense whatsoever, which is sort of the oh no. The Enterprise is being pulled into a black hole. If you'll just zoom fast enough, you'll escape type of thing because something big and menacing is coming up from behind in a wave. I've seen that so many freaking times. That provided zero thrill for me. Plus, knowing that the character is going to have to survive, absolutely no sense of menace. But in the stuff going on on the ground, we don't know what's going to happen to Jai. We only know that Zare is presumably going to be an important character, but for all we know, he could be important because he's going to somehow die, and that makes an impression on Ezra. So we don't know what's going on with either of them. We've got them separated out, and they're able to take that sense of menace and add into it a lot of humor for the moment. We've got uh, kind of the moment of just zapping, you know, the buddy, who the, the other, the, was it Oleg, or whatever the guy's name is, uh, the jerk who's on the ATDP. And we've got the, he's trying to stop them kind of thing that's going on, which is something that just shows just how imbecilic the Imperial officers sometimes are and how myopic they can be when it comes to their own grandiose notions of what the Empire is and what uh, everyone should think of the Empire and be willing to do for the Empire. Um, but then you've also got the great twist of it all, where they're finally in a position to be able to leave, and Zare decides to stay behind so he can keep looking for his sister. And that puts him back in danger, makes it a character that can come back, gives us a real sense of humanity to the character that he's not just going right along with the others, that he, he has his own mission, his own storyline, essentially, to pursue. And, of course, he doesn't, you know, he doesn't just you know, say, oh, knock me out, make it look like you hit me kind of thing, which almost any other story Star Wars or otherwise would tend to do, you know, oh, they can't know that I was with you. Knock me out. Make it look like we fought. No, he breaks out the blaster and starts shooting and doesn't manage to hit them. But when compared to a regular stormtrooper, that doesn't seem to be all that different. It's a really well put together ground battle intercutting with this somewhat, to me, blasé space battle that the episode was supposedly all about. Uh, and it seems like the the kyber crystal thing was sort of the the window dressing, the MacGuffin of the entire thing, when really the bulk of the story was to bring us to this moment. The connection between these heroic characters, the cadets, the one we may never see again, who's going to go off to hide with his family, the one we're going to continue to follow for the series, and the one that can come back as someone we know and like because of this episode, all sending off in their directions with some nice menace and explosions. Great! Great ending. Just odd how the intercuts felt like you were going sort of from an A-level story to sort of a blasé B or B-minus type story that was just kind of there for the space battle to me. And I think my ultimate opinion of this episode will be if we see any of this going anywhere. If, as I said, this lays some groundwork, if this plants some seeds that are going to make a big difference later in the series, then... You know, maybe my tune will change about it. But overall, there were some cool things in this episode, but 
as a whole, it kind of left me cold. See, I can see this being something that builds up in a couple different directions. I mean, the Inquisitor now knows another thing that Ezra is responsible for. So it gives him one more reason to, to bring Ezra to justice. And then, like I said, with, with Zare, there's that open possibility that the details he finds out about his sister could swing his opinion. I mean, from what we got from his interactions with Ezra, based on what happened with her, I could see him easily deciding that Ezra was in the wrong, especially once he finds out that his name is Ezra and that it's not the pseudonym that he'd been going by. I mean, I could see that also being another one of those aspects of betrayal that, you know, given right, we could see Zare turn his back and have a betrayal very similar to what Ezra did to Jai, right? And the, uh, you know, when, when Zare and, and Ezra got together and Zare had to make the top three, I mean, only now we could see it opposite and have it have some serious ramifications for not just the rebels but for ezra himself you don't even need him to think that ezra was in the wrong for it i mean if if his sister is still alive out there somewhere then in theory you could have the leverage of hey you know you will you will betray your friends or your friend as he refers to him you know there at the uh, the end and everything you'll have to betray them or we kill your sister. Heck, they don't even need to have the sister, as long as he believes that the sister might still be alive. Uh, it reminds me, I was just recently watching the 1966 uh, Batman film, and the whole thing with Catwoman and Ms. Kitka. They're the same character, but several times Catwoman is able to get Batman to back off by threatening the life of Miss Kitka, who is supposedly being held somewhere else, when it's really her. You, know, you don't even need the actual person to make the threat, as long as there's a question of whether you can carry out the threat the threat can hold. So I could see them manipulating Zare, based especially on the last scene that we get here with Zare and the Inquisitor. It, see, here's a lot of potential for the character. I'm with Jonathan. This is a, I don't think it was a blasé episode. I don't think it left me cold. I really like this episode overall. But I am in agreement that this thing, it's, it's value over time. You know, it's grade, so to speak, in the eyes of Star Wars fans, is very much going to depend on do these plot points go anywhere? But I guess you could sort of say that for many of the episodes we've seen thus far, except perhaps Rise of the Old Masters, that was pretty much awesome on its face. You know, and for me, for this episode, I think that Filoni and crew have been dropping so many hints uh, about previous things that we've already seen that how can they not plant seeds for the future? Even Ezra says to Zare, you know, I'll keep in touch. So, yeah, I think we're going to see Zare again. You know, it may not be too quickly. We may see Zare as he's older. You know, I get the feeling that that our Rebels crew might even stumble upon his sister. So I, I think that it's it's going to lead into the future. And the one thing I want to say about this episode is the Inquisitor. Now, this is the third time we've seen the Inquisitor. The one episode where he battles Kanan, the extra footage where he's talking to vader and now we see him and he is a very calculating enemy you know he's not a clenched fist i'm gonna get him kind of like how callus is and kind of even like how vader is uh, he is not like that at all and i am starting to like this character more and more and more mm -hmm. and i i think this is this guy's gonna be a big character yeah, he was definitely a character that I didn't like at first. It's grown on me. His eyes have a, a creepy ability. But in Rise of the Old Masters, the way he was able to just 
to break apart Kanan's form by watching him and be able to tell him, you know, who your master was and that kind of stuff added a whole level of, Oh my God, get back from this guy. You know? So, so for me, I'm excited about that aspect of, you know, him having one more thing on Ezra, you know, moving forward. I, I think for me, you know, knowing that Filoni and them had that, that trial and error when it came with the clone wars of putting episodes out of order and that, and figuring out, you know, that, that fans didn't like that. And moving to this style where we're not getting so much arcs, but some fast-paced episodes that are really building off each other. I'm very optimistic for the future of where we're going. We're only, what, five episodes deep. And even though they're not really building off each other much, there are are hints to things as they go forward. You know, the the friendships are, are growing. The, the trust is being built between these characters, things like that. They're becoming a well-knit group. And Filoni has never really used something just one time and thrown it away. They've always found a way to bring it back somehow, some way. And I'm really staying hopeful for a lot of the characters that we've seen introduced here. I mean, I'm, I would love to see all of the named cadets have bigger roles down the road. I mean, even the, the green kid, I, I can't remember his name right now, the punk, you know, I'd love to see him become somebody major down the road too and have a hate on for Ezra, you know, because of this interactions and stuff. Yeah, I got to agree with you, Mark, that these characters, I when I first got introduced to these characters, they did immediately jump at me as I like them. But now after seeing how they work, I am really starting to like these characters. These might be some of the best Star Wars characters introduced than any of the characters in the Clone Wars. Um, when you really think about it, I mean, every time they introduce new characters in the Clone Wars, how many of us really liked them? You know, and these guys are really growing on me. So I agree with you on that. I do really like the characters. I mean, the the Inquisitor, at first, it was like, oh, it's like he's the love child of the son, Asajj Ventress, and according to his forehead, a pair of corduroy pants. But these characters, you know, we didn't know anything about them at first. We got those little video clips, you know, meet so-and-so, meet so-and-so, and always sort of that compact, you know, PR speak type stuff. Now that we've seen him in action, they've all really kind of grown on us, it seems like, but... I'm not sure that it's a fair comparison to make between, say, that and the Clone Wars. They're both Filoni series, uh, one with Lucas more directly interacting, of course. But, again, this series, and we said this in a previous episode, this series benefits from the fact that we don't know anybody. We've seen C-3PO, we've seen R2-D2, we've seen Bail Organa, uh, we've seen Vader now. Beyond that, all these characters that we're getting, episode by episode by episode, unless you count, you know, Luminara's corpse, more or less... They're all these new characters we've never seen before. So they come at us completely fresh, and we don't see them trampling through stuff. A lot of the early resistance to the Clone Wars as a series and to Ahsoka specifically, and the characterizations, even stuff like Anakin being knighted when he was, was because we had this pre-existing continuity, and it was sort of taking a wrecking ball to it and tearing through it as it went along. I'm not sure that the first chunk of the Clone Wars will ever be able to be viewed the way the first episodes of this series can. Because this series, even without the canon break taking place back in April, I mean, what we've got here is something that feels fresh because it is fresh, as opposed to something supposed to feel fresh, but only because it's smashing through all this other stuff that we had in the first place. We didn't come in and shatter the pot and get rid of the old plants that we liked to put in this new, nicely smelling plant. No, we just got a new plant. I'm not sure that the comparison to fan reactions is ever going to be a fully valid comparison when we're dealing with these two series. No, Nathan, I agree with you. This is something completely different. It's it's so removed 
from everything before. And I guess the best way that I can describe it is that this series has room to breathe in ways that the Clone Wars never had. And you're right, even without the the reset of canon, this series is so removed from anything and everything that we've seen before that they can do pretty much anything they want without having to worry about butting up to anything we know or think we know. Well, on that note, I want to thank you guys for discussing this episode with me. I think I may have enjoyed the conversation a little bit more than I did the episode itself. And I look forward to talking about next week's episode with you guys. So until then, have a good evening. Good night, everybody. And pay attention to how the Phantom docks with the ghost. Good night, everybody. Talk to you guys next time. Thank you for listening to this episode of the Star Wars Report's Rebels Roundtable. Rebels Roundtable is hosted by Jonathan, Barrent, Jen, Nathan, Mark, and Dan. Interact with us online at facebook.com slash rebelsroundtable or on Twitter at rebelsround. Also, be sure to visit rebelsroundtable.com when looking for an episode directory of the show. The Rebels Roundtable team is proud to carry on the legacy of Venganza Media's Republic Forces Radio Network podcast. We invite you to visit RepublicForces.com's archive section to hear many of the team members' thoughts on the Clone Wars, droids, Ewoks, and the Clone Wars micro-series. And check out Star Wars Beyond the Films, the official Expanded Universe podcast of StarWarsReport.com, which you can find among the second Airborne Division podcast network at StarWarsReport.com. Star Wars Rebels and all that the Star Wars universe contains is the intellectual property of the Walt Disney Company, and no infringement is intended. Star Wars Report's Rebels Roundtable is copyright 2014, all rights reserved. And the professor himself, Nathan P. Butler. Hey, hey, hey! Good to be back to talk about Star Wars Rebels, in which the Force... I don't know, it's either asleep, or maybe this is when it just kind of jumps up and slaps the stoot. Fuck! And then I fuck myself. (laughs) (sighs) Hey, good to be back talking about Star Wars Rebels. I guess if the Force is about to awaken, then the classic trilogy must be sort of getting a little out of bed and slapping the snooze button. So does this mean that this is when the Force is asleep? Is it grumbly? Is there a nightmare? Maybe it's up getting a midnight snack. Not quite sure what, but... It's Rebels, so I'm excited. You couldn't just say hello, huh? <laughs> <laughs> well, I could have said I was the Swan Holocron. It. Never mind. Oh. <laughs> <laughs> Is that me like st- the Gilligan? <laughs> I don't know, but he was saying that even whenever we're not with Swan anymore. Like, all right, what else? <laughs> Barrett, this would be a perfect time for you to talk. Did Barrett disappear too? Where the heck? <laughs> I'm like, I-, I could talk about this. But Go, Mark, let, because I don't know what the hell happened to Barrett. <laughs> I don't know. My mic just went off. Oh, he's back. I couldn't hear anything. I'm back. <laughs> oh, man. Th- th- this this recording is cursed. It just is. <laughs> All of a sudden, I couldn't hear you. I'm, I was talking, but go ahead. I'm muted. Well, no, I, don't, I, I don't mute myself. I, do, I, I want you to talk here. Wow.
Now, is Zare's name a kind of nod to Zaire? It's Ezra Scrambled. I know that. I think you're looking for something that maybe isn't there, Barrett, but... Wait, wait. One's the light side, one's the dark side. Is there a racial reference going on here? Oh, you too. I had to get it before Barrett got it. I have said I've been on my best behavior these last four episodes. So. You know what? I, I've been very impressed with Barrett. Nathan, on the other hand, Nathan may need some remediation. Thank you. <laughs> I don't want to hear crap all at all about noses or lips ever again, poor boys. <laughs> I was I was going to ask <laughs> I was going to ask if if Nathan felt the same way, but. <laughs> That's true. I mean, we could have Darksaber 2.0 coming at us. <laughs> could be that there's a crystal that awakens the Force. Okay, You know, Nathan, one thing I gotta... Stop it. Stop it, Nathan. Just stop it. <laughs> what? You know, uh, Mark, this is like... I think I spoke with you before, but I see your picture now. You, you know, you're no Latara, but you're a pretty handsome guy. <laughs> <laughs> oh, here we go. <laughs> I don't even know which picture I have up anymore. <laughs> now, are you it's, comparing him the to patch. season one uh-huh. Latara or Skank season two Latara? <laughs> Everybody loves a skank. You know, I got so I'm much. Not according to Jack. I got so much flack from that. Everybody loves a skank. I got so many emails and really, and, yeah. Really? And when I said that, I can't believe you left that in, Jonathan. Oh, but that's I had of- to. <laughs> I absolutely had to. Everybody loves a skank. In quotes. That's all this I got. Weird. It's when Filoni goes, all right, boob windows for everyone. <laughs> you get a boob window and you get a boob window and you get an ass window. Even, oh, I say, even Kanan. Kanan gets a boob window. It'll be Zeb that gets the butt window. It'll be like oh, a, a little plumber's crack circle. Oh, Just enough to let the gas out. Will you please stop talking?